Father, that is our prayer. That you would come to us and abide with us. We know that this is your plan in Christ. Open now our hearts and our minds wide. That we may receive your word. And be transformed by your spirit. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Everyone is interested in life. There is a yearning in every heart, in every soul, to live. And to not just be alive, but to really live. It is one of the great equalizers of human existence. Wherever you go, whoever you talk to... Everyone in every country, speaking every language, following every religion, is looking for life. Looking for to live with meaning and purpose and value and significance. Even people who are contemplating ending their physical lives do so because they feel that life has no meaning and no purpose and they see no way to get to that. And if you don't have that, what's the point? Unfortunately, so many people who are alive are not really living. For too many people, life is empty and meaningless and purposeless. They feel abandoned, hollow. They live with a, with a void. And it is as true for people inside the walls of the church as outside them. But that's not God's intent for his creatures. Genesis tells us that God creates us to live. But as we know, sin enters the picture and the result is death and the sinful death changes and corrupts everything. Charles Spurgeon, great preacher of another generation, talked about this and said a lot of people have a trouble understanding the fall. They think that when Adam fell, he just broke his little finger when he really broke his neck and ruined his race. And it's true. But because we're created for life, we do everything in our power in spite of sin to find life and to experience life. But everything we do doesn't quite work. Which is why we keep looking and searching. And it's our yearning. It's the yearning of of people through the ages. It's this yearning for life that people through the centuries have been trying to experience this yearning for fulfillment and joy and peace and purpose and value and significance and meaning. It's this searching and yearning that John addresses in the fourth chapter 
of his first epistle. And he begins in verse 7 by writing, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. For no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. I think the key verse is nine. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live. That we might have life through him. It's what John tells us in the beginning of his prologue that we read just a moment ago. Speaking of Jesus, he says, in him was life. And I think John is talking about eternal life, but I also think he's talking about life now. Jesus himself says in John 10, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Or as the New Living Translation says, my purpose is to give life in all of its fullness. And I think that means now too. And the eternal son could have come for any number of reasons. Could have come to, for the father's benefit, for his own benefit, to get something from us. But John makes it remarkably clear that Jesus comes to give us life. He comes for our benefit and our benefit alone. We who were dead and dying, Jesus comes so we might live. To give us the kind of freedom and victory and excitement and anticipation and hope and joy and intimacy with the Father that we're yearning to experience. Jesus comes so that we who have rejected him and turned from him and ignored him and blasphemed him and shamed him might have life. Full, wonderful, joyous life. And John tells us that that yearning we have can be found nowhere else but in Jesus. In him and him alone is life. I think in one degree or another, everyone knows that there is no life, no salvation, no freedom or joy or abundant living without someone helping us. Something outside of us. Whatever you might think of, of Hollywood or filmmakers, I've come to the conclusion that they understand that truth as well as anyone. And they might not get the answer right, but they recognize the problem, the yearning, the searching. This human yearning for a savior who brings life. I'll admit something to you and show you a little bit how behind I am. Um, The Matrix movie was released in 1998. I saw it for the first time this summer. So I'm kind of out of touch with that. And I know there's a couple more to come. I haven't even gotten to those yet. But I've got some catching up to do. But it's an interesting movie. A little hard to follow sometimes. But but an interesting movie nonetheless. I was particularly intrigued by the overt spiritual references in that movie. And the underlying theme of human need, human yearning and searching and salvation. 
Now, on one hand, it didn't really surprise me because I see that theme of need and salvation, particularly of something outside of us, through many of the contemporary films that, that uh, particularly what we might call those superhero films, you know, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, all those man movies. Uh, those, they all have them, right? You know, the, the, the plot, we feel trapped or, or enslaved. We know that life is not what we want it to be. We feel overwhelmed by the problems of life, the struggles of human existence, the pain of life, injustice in the world, and we try to do something about it, but we can't. If we could do something about it, we would have fixed it a long time ago. We need something, someone from outside of us. And so we are continually creating saviors to help us. What's interesting to me is that in the Matrix... It takes some convincing before the hero, Neo, is willing to take on this role as the one. His reluctance is obvious and he, and he wavers even as the task is thrown upon him. And what struck me is what a contrast to what the scriptures tell us about Jesus. He is born into this world. He commits himself to ministry willingly. Paul tells us that Jesus voluntarily humbles himself to the task of a savior. Not once do we sense that Jesus is doing this only because the father is forcing him to or because people are making him feel guilty to do it. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he has the opportunity to run, he doesn't. Jesus comes willingly to redeem all of us who can be redeemed no other way. He is the answer to our yearning and our searching for real, full life. And you step back from that, from the familiarity of it, and you ask yourself, why would he do that? And John says, it's simply because he loves us. I don't think there's anything more important for us to know than the truth that God loves us. I have a feeling that even though we talk a lot about it and we talk about how much God loves us, I think that deep in our being, we find that difficult to truly grasp. We find it difficult to really, truly believe it. We're not alone in that. Yet to the end of of the third chapter of Ephesians and Paul is is seeing this in the Ephesian people. And so he writes to them that God, he prays that God will strengthen them with power and that Christ will dwell in their hearts through faith. And then he prays that their eyes will be opened and their hearts will be opened in order to grasp and understand so that it penetrates into every part of their being how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So that then they might receive the fullness of God. And receiving this fullness of God seems to be contingent upon grasping the love of God. Because John makes so clear in this passage, it's because of God's love for us that he sends Christ to be life for us. And they are inseparable. 
But until we, until we truly begin to embrace the great love of God for us, until we believe that God loves us unconditionally, until we believe that God loves every part of us, even that 5 or 10 or 20% of us that we don't love about ourselves at all, until we believe that God loves all of us, we will find it difficult to receive his life that he creates us to experience and to know. I think that's why so few of us truly live. In his book, Hustling God, Craig Barnes tells about a professor in seminary who said to his class one day, begin each morning in prayer thanking God that you are unnecessary. Begin each morning in prayer thanking God that you are unnecessary. He goes on to say, for 20 years I wrestled with that advice. I mean, we all understand that God and creation can get along without us and that everything we do can be done by someone else. We don't like to admit that, but we know it's true. But surely we're all necessary, aren't we? And his professor said to them, No, your life is too important to be necessary. You deserve to be loved. It took me a while to understand that and to grasp that. But but then it hit me that how many people want relationship with us simply because we are necessary to them? They need us, but do they really want us? And if they didn't need us, would they still want relationship with us? It's one thing to be wanted by people who want something from you or who need you to do something in order to make them feel fulfilled. It's something else entirely to be wanted by someone who has everything but desires relationship with you simply because they like you, because they think you're special, because you're important to them. And see, we don't have to impress God to be liked by God. He just likes us. And we don't have to prove ourselves worthy to be wanted by God. He just wants us. God says, I don't need you. I want you. I love you, not because of what you can do for me or because you're gifted or talented or because you obey my rules or honor me. I I just love you because I want to. And if we could get a grasp on that truth... I think it would change our lives and our church and our communities and the world. And that's why incarnation is so important. Because it's in the incarnation that we begin to understand truly the love of God. Someone once talked about their struggle to to grasp why God had to come in human flesh. And they said that one day it hit them. That the people with bodies, we need to see things embodied. And so God had to be embodied or we who have bodies would never in a trillion years have been able to really understand his love. It's one thing for God to say, I love you. It's something else entirely for God to come among us so we don't miss it. Someone has said, God didn't send Christ to us 
God came to us in Christ. And the Christmas story, the incarnation, is the most costly, vulnerable event in the history of human existence. As the Almighty One chooses, in the words of Charles Wesley, to empty himself of all but love and to enter into our world as a helpless, defenseless human baby. And so the one who creates grain now must eat in order to survive. The one who separates the waters from the earth now must drink or he will die. The one who creates and knows everything about our bodies must now relieve himself. The one who tells the stars where they should go must sleep in order to have energy to live the next day. Why would the Almighty stoop to such a drastic step? Why would the maker of everything stoop so low and give up so much? Why would the only true God do something so unimaginable? John says, because he loves us. In that most famous of scripture passages, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. But as wonderful as the incarnation is and as an expression, as the expression of God's love, John says there there is one more part of this that you need to understand. John says that as Christ's love brings you life, then you then become agents of his love for others so they can know Christ's life. We become bearers of God's love. And so in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Since God's loved us so much, we ought to love one another. And this call to love always begins with the people who are closest to us. We are one another. Loving others means that we want them to experience every blessing of God. It's wanting them to be free and to be filled with hope and joy, even when our lives are not exactly what we would like for them to be. Loving others is sacrificing ourselves, our wants, desires, our our yearning for ease and harmony and a pain-free existence, just so that other people can know the fullness of God's life in their life. It's thinking of others, acting toward others, as God acts toward us in Christ. That's not always our MO. We don't always respond to each other in that kind of spirit. And it's hard sometimes when people disagree with us, when people hurt us and disappoint us and, and sin against us, But what if Christ's attitude toward us was simply a reflection of our attitude toward each other? What if our impatience and disrespect and unconcern and apathy became Christ's expressions toward us? So why would we ever think it's okay to treat one another that way? Verse 7 says that everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Some people interpret that to mean that faith in Christ and surrender to Christ really isn't necessary. If you love, you're good with God. But I think that places the emphasis incorrectly. John's talking to people as Moses and the prophets and Jesus and Paul talk to people who are convinced that if they believe right things, then it doesn't matter how you treat other people. 
And John simply echoes the word of God from beginning to end, that you cannot be right with God, that you really don't have life if you're not loving. What's the clue that a person who claims to to have a relationship with God, what do they really do? What's the clue to signal in that they do have that relationship with God? Is it what we know? Is it because we say the right words? Is it because we believe the right things? John says, no, it's, it's do we love? But let's not be sentimental about that. Loving others is risky. It's a huge risk for God to love us. It will be a huge risk for us to love others. And it will mean vulnerability and sacrifice and patience and compassion and respect and involvement. It's through incarnation that God communicates love and offers life. Isn't it likely that God wants to so fill us that we become the presence of God to one another? Because once you're alive, then you no longer have that searching and that yearning for significance and meaning that we'll do anything to get. Once you're alive, fully alive in Christ, then you are free to love. Whatever way it means to love, you are free to risk and to be vulnerable with other people because you're already alive in Christ. But you cannot love people. None of us can love each other from a distance. And if we learn anything about the incarnation, that's clear. God knows that if we're ever going to understand his love for us, He has to come among us. And if we are ever going to be able to express and understand our love for each other and for the rest of the world, it's going to mean personal. Because if life and love mean anything, they mean personal, closeness, relationship. Back in the early 90s when the the AIDS crisis was just unfolding, society was, as a culture, we were pretty frightened about what all that was going to mean. One of the great fears was not quite understanding how this disease was transmitted. And there, were, there was a, a great amount of panic and fear in culture, and, in, and that included among Christians. We also had a sense of, of putting a, uh, seeing this from a moral perspective more than from a medical perspective. And so in that, in that context of that culture, there were children who weren't allowed to go to school because they had the AIDS virus. And there were churches who wouldn't allow children into their children's programs or their nurseries because a child might have the AIDS virus. And if people had AIDS, we wanted to know and we wanted to keep them away because we didn't want to be, we want to be exposed to that. It was in that context that I read an article about a man who had been asked to go to visit a young gentleman in the hospital who was dying from AIDS. He got to the hospital and he's prepared to go in to visit this young man. The doctor said to him, look, you know, you got to protect yourself. And so you need to put on a mask and gloves and a gown before you go into this room. And so he put on all this stuff and he started to go in and it, it struck him how... 
how artificial this all felt. And he he just sensed that the Lord was saying to him, you don't need that stuff. And so he took off the mask and he took off the gown and he took off the gloves. And he walked into this young man's room and he put his bare hand on this young man's bare arm. And he leaned down to him and he said, I just came to tell you that I love you and God loves you. And it's no wonder in a culture and in a world where he was in in a sense an untouchable that he opened his life not only to this man who came to visit him but to Christ. This week someone told me about a conversation they had with a person said to them what if our main job as Christians is just to love? What if our main job is just to love? What if all the time and the energy that we expend trying to impress each other and trying to be bigger and better and trying to be right and to prove others wrong, trying to do all that stuff, what if that's causing us to miss the main thing? To love. What if our primary responsibility is not to be right, but to love? And that that would start right here in this building, in this community of faith. We embody the love of Christ when we love each other. We're only able to do that as God lives in us. And out of the fullness of his life in us, we have a yearning and a desire to love one another. So are we ready to live? To truly live so that we might love. Father, give us that yearning. Give us an openness, a new kind of openness to Christ. To see your desires to fill us with life. That we might be channels hands and feet and eyes and voices of love. It's only through Christ. Amen.